Well, York, I hear you have captured the whole damned German army. Brigadier General Julian Lindsay, Commander, 164th Infantry Brigade, 82nd Division, AEF, Argonne Forest, October 8th, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 76, Sergeant York. Let's go ahead and let's start with some admin notes. Shout out to listener Gordon, with whom I spoke on a recent Sunday afternoon. Gordon told me about his aunt, who was an ambulance driver in the Verdun sector in 1918. I love being able to connect with other World War I enthusiasts. It truly is one of the best parts of this whole project. So, Gordon, thank you for giving me some of your time on that Sunday afternoon. It's very much appreciated. Another shout-out. This episode goes to Cynthia Jane, our newest patron on Patreon, which is a great way to do Patreon pitch time. It's been a while. So, as patrons on Patreon... You, like Cynthia Jane, will have early access to all new episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as extra episodes that have not yet been released. Patrons currently have access to an episode on the battle for Feme and Femet in the summer of 1918. And as patrons requested, we are working our way through the Battle of Tannenberg. And yes, gentle folk, of the BFWWP community, I have not forgotten that there is a third and final episode to the story of Tannenberg, and we will get to it when I get back from France. So psyched to say that. And I haven't forgotten about Soissons either. If this all sounds interesting to you, uh, check us out on patreon.com backslash battles of the first world war podcast. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as $1 per episode, and it is greatly appreciated. Patrons are only charged when a new episode is released. So, to get back to Cynthia, thank you once again for signing up to support the podcast. Another quick admin note. Um, It's been said that reviews help get the podcast noticed, And I think that is awesome, and do please keep those reviews coming. Uh, What I also hear out there in the podcasting world is that subscriptions are a big driver in podcast ratings as well. So folks, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you already have, get out there and tell your friends to sign up. Toot sweet. Get your siblings and parents to subscribe. Hey, I'll be honest and say I'm not above taking my mother's phone and subscribing her to the podcast. Uh, All of my family are subscribed, although, of course, none of them actually listen to it. But, you know, you get what you can. But anyway, reviews and subscriptions are great non-monetary ways to help support the podcast. And with that, I think we are done with our admin news. Okay, folks, back up the line. 
With the AEF First Corps' attack on October 7th, breaking the German defenses in the Argonne, we come now to an event that has become epic legend in American history. It is the story of Sergeant Alvin York and the fateful York Patrol of October 8th, 1918. Before we get to the action, let's take a look at the then-acting corporal's life prior to that day. There are plenty of books out there on the man and his life that go into more detail, and I found Sergeant York, an American hero, by David D. Lee, to be a concise telling of his story. Mr. Lee's book is one of the sources for this episode. Alvin York was born on December 13, 1887, in Fentress County, Tennessee, a, quote, remote, homogenous, and poor area, end quote. And York's town of Pall Mall was one that one local described as, quote, just as far up in the Cumberland Mountains as you can get without starting back in another direction, end quote. In 1914, the county seat of Jamestown was 10 miles away from the nearest railroad, and York's home was 40 miles on horseback further out than that. When World War I began, local goings-on and farm produce prices were far more important in the town newspapers than some faraway Europeans slaughtering each other. To say York grew up poor is an understatement. As the third of 11 children, he grew up in abject poverty, a kind that is difficult for many of us to understand today. I have recently heard some stories from my mother of her growing up in a similar area of Portugal, and she and York had similar experiences. Alvin York worked in his family's fields starting at age six, and he reportedly got his first pair of real shoes at age 16. Before that, he went around largely barefoot. York grew up steeped in hard work, hunting, and guns. There was little church going or school, the latter of which he finished with only a third grade education. This is an indication of just how remote Fentress County was in those days. To go back to the hunting and guns part, York grew up with and loved both. Hunting wasn't just for fun. Hunting provided meat for the dinner table. Missing a shot meant a wasted bullet and missed meals, so young Alvin learned to become a fine shot through frequent forays into the mountains. As York became older, he went off to find work wherever he could, and it coincided with his days as a young man sowing his wild oats. York would work, then go drinking and fighting and just generally raising hell. This apparently went on for several years until he himself began to tire of it and looked for a new direction. He found it in his religious faith, and he underwent a type of conversion that put an end to his wild child drinking and fighting. This seems to be a feature of York's personality. Lee's book, Sergeant York, describes him as, quote, something of a plunger who committed himself recklessly to whatever project won his loyalty, end quote. York mended his ways, and he became a faithful and reliable member of his local church. Then, 
the United States entered the Great War. The tall, lanky, and red-headed Alvin York was inducted on the 15th of November, 1917, and he made it clear he did not want to fight on religious grounds. Still, he shipped off to Camp Gordon, Georgia, where he was eventually assigned to Company G, 2nd Battalion, 328th Infantry Regiment, 82nd Division, AEF. It was lucky he was assigned to G Company as its commander, Captain Edward Danforth, understood enough of York's moral dilemma and of his personality to see that he was no malingerer. Danforth had York speak with a battalion commander, a major named Edward Buxton. Buxton was himself a deeply religious man, and he patiently explained to this brand new private why what they were doing for the war was God's work. When these conversations left York even more troubled, Buxton granted York ten days' leave to go home and figure himself out. Alvin York did just that, and in a solitary trip into the mountains, he received word from his God that he should indeed fight. He returned to Georgia, and by summer of 1918, he and the 82nd Division were in France. And so, in the first week of October 1918, the 82nd Division was called into the fighting. As we saw last episode, one brigade of the division was inserted into the line in the Air Valley as part of Lieutenant General Hunter Liggett's plan to flank attack the Germans in the Argonne Forest. On October 7th, the 328th and 327th Infantry Regiments attacked west across the Air Valley and towards hills 244 and 223 in the village of chatel Cherry. By nightfall, with the help of the veteran 28th Division on the left flank, the two hills had been mostly taken. Already on the evening of the 7th, new orders came rushing in to continue the attack. For the 328th, the objective was the Decauville Railroad, two kilometers west of Hill 223. The 328th was to attack due west and seize the rail line, thus cutting off a local supply line for the Germans. The attack was fixed for 0600 on the morning of the 8th. Alvin York and the men of 2nd Battalion, 328th Infantry, crossed the river air and got themselves into position. They passed through the doughboys of the 1st Battalion, who had attacked the day before. G Company was on the extreme left of the battalion's front. There was supposed to be a preparatory barrage, but the American guns were silent that early and dark morning. The Americans attacked across the open ground anyway, a trend seen as disturbing amongst the British and French liaison officers wherever the AEF was fighting. York was in a support platoon behind the first line. He watched this German machine gun scythe the men ahead of him down, quote, like the long grass before the mowing machine at home, end quote. York hit the ground like everyone else around him. By 0900, the battalion had pushed just a kilometer west of its jump-off line. There is one story of Alvin York, the one of legend, that you will hear now. But 
There is another story of the same events as told by the other survivors of that day, and we will hear that story too. It came time for York's platoon to advance into the Argonne. Almost as soon as it did, its leader, 2nd Lieutenant Kirby Stewart, was cut down by enemy machine gun fire, and Platoon Sergeant Harry Parsons took command. Parsons split off three squads, a total of 17 men, led by Acting Sergeant Bernard Early, to lead a patrol into the woods to eliminate the German machine gun nests. It was an awful responsibility for a non-commissioned officer to order his men to go to what looked to be certain death, Parson later recounted. But I figured it had to be done. I figured they had a slight chance of getting the machine guns. Bernard Early led the patrol into the forest, getting himself and his men through a valley and then up onto a wooded ridge. There, the patrol members had a conference on what to do next. According to the older story, Early and York agreed on moving deeper into the woods so they could come up on the German machine gun nests from behind. As they pushed carefully into the forest, two German soldiers with Red Cross armbands up and bolted out of the brush up ahead of the American patrol. After taking a few shots at them with no success, the doughboys followed their trail further into the woods. They soon came upon a large group of Germans sitting down for breakfast, with their perimeter unsecured and far too carefree for the battlefield. These were men of the 120th Landwehr and 210th Reserve Infantry Regiments, units that had seen endless fighting since God knows when. Morale and situational awareness were suffering as a result. Among the soldiers was one Leutnant Paul Vollmer, commander of the Erste Bataillon, Landwehr Regiment 120, who was trying to get the men to get up and get in the firing line. He was not having an easy time of it. The Americans took full advantage. They came in close and suddenly opened fire. Rifles cracked, shell shots hammered. Chaos exploded as German soldiers were hit and fell, while others scrambled for cover or dropped to the ground. It was over very quickly. The Germans knew the game for them was up. One man continued to fight and it was Alvin York who shot and killed him. The rest, some 80 to 90 men, surrendered. The German soldiers were then organized into two columns in preparation for being marched back to American lines. Before they could do that, however, German machine gun fire exploded from a hill behind the bivouac. The Germans dropped to the ground. The Americans did not. Bernard Early and eight other doughboys were hit in the hail of fire. Alvin York here became a one-man army. In the gunfire, he dropped to the ground and found himself in a good position. The Germans up on the hill some 25 yards away had to raise their heads from their holes to fire down the slope. And here, the Tennessee Long Hunter went to work. He accurately dropped any German soldier who showed his head up on that hill. He, quote, just touched him off, end quote in the inaccurate accent attributed to him by Australian biographer Thomas Scahill. After a few minutes, the surviving Germans on the hill figured out where York was located. 
Knowing he was firing from a five-round clip, a German lieutenant and five soldiers rushed down the slope towards York with fixed bayonets. One of the six men would be able to get to York and take him out, they reasoned. York analyzed the situation and pulled out his pistol. I touched off the sixth man first, he said in Scahill's biography, then the fifth, then the fourth, then the third, and so on. That's the way we shoot wild turkeys at home. You see, we don't want the front ones to know that we're getting the back ones, and then they keep on coming until we get them all. Of course, I hadn't time to think of that. I guess I just naturally did it. I knowed, too, that if the front ones wavered, or if I stopped them, the rear ones would drop down and pump a volley into me and get me. He then became aware of the lives he was taking, and he began calling for the Germans to surrender. Lieutenant Paul Fulmer crept up to him and offered to help. Fulmer was reportedly surprised that the well-trained soldier was American. He had figured the rifle skills were those of an Englishman. The Germans on the hill surrendered, and the prisoners were once again organized under York's watch. The surviving doughboys marched along the column with Lieutenant Fulmer at the head of the column with York right behind him. York's pistol was trained on Fulmer's back with the explicit threat that any funny business would mean the death of the German lieutenant. On the way back to American lines, several more Germans were taken prisoner on Fulmer's orders that they surrender. When they eventually made it back to the brigade's rear area, Brigadier General Lindsay greeted York with the quote that opened this episode. Well, York, I hear you have captured the whole damn German army. The Tennessee soldier replied that he only had 132. Alvin York would later earn the Medal of Honor for his actions on the 8th of October, 1918. There is another version of events for that day in the Argonne Forest, as told by the other members of that legendary patrol. This retelling of the York Patrol comes to us from a soon-to-be-published book by James Gregory, who has been a guest on the podcast before. The book will be titled The Other Sixteen, Unraveling the Myth of Sergeant Alvin York, and will dive much deeper into this side of the story. So let's backtrack to the morning of October 8th again, when the 2nd Battalion of the 328th attacked at 6 a.m. The battalion advanced some 700 meters beyond Hill 223 until machine gun fire from the front and flanks stopped them cold. 2nd Lieutenant Stewart was killed while leading from the front, and command passed to Platoon Sergeant Harry Parsons. Parsons detailed Acting Sergeant Bernard Early to take three squads, totaling 17 men, into the forest to outflank the enemy machine guns above them. The squads totaled 17 because there had already been casualties. But there were three squad leaders, Corporal Murray Savage, Acting Corporal Otis Merithew, and Acting Corporal Alvin York. The patrol moved off into the woods, moving over a hill and then along the forest floor until they hit a stream. Someone sensed movement up ahead, and one of the doughboys called out for whoever was there to identify themselves. In short order, two Germans sprang out of the brush and ran for their lives, 
with bullets and then doughboys chasing them. Early now split his men into smaller groups, and then they continued the advance. It was Early's group that practically walked into the German breakfast party in the woods. The Americans quickly came at the unsuspecting group and opened fire. Over a dozen Germans fell to the rifle and shell-shot fire before survivors' hands went up and Early called for a ceasefire. Alvin York and his squad were ordered to cover the prisoners with their weapons while the other Americans searched and disarmed them. Early searched the first row of prisoners and Otis Marathu searched the second. Early was just telling Private Joseph Kornacki to stay close to the Germans in case of any shenanigans when the POWs all suddenly dropped to the ground and a storm of machine gun fire chopped into the ranks of the standing Americans. The Germans had been signaled to get down, leaving the Americans as open targets. A machine gun nest on a hill just 25 yards away had seen the doughboys. Bernard Early was stitched with machine gun bullets in his arm and side. Six other doughboys were killed almost instantly, including Elvin York's best friend, Corporal Murray Savage. The rest dropped, scattered, and returned fire. Sergeant Early, although in excruciating pain, had his wits together enough to know he was out of the fight. He passed command to Otis Marathu. Marathu himself was already returning fire with the others. Private Percy Beardsley used his show-show to spray bullets towards the enemy, and he accounted for several of them. Joseph Kornacki crawled closer to the German prisoners, and then, too, began popping his rifle off towards the top of the hill. In this version of the story, York took cover at the initial burst of fire, then moved into a better position and began taking out German soldiers on the hilltop when they attempted to shoot at other Americans. Beardsley, near York, fired his show shot until it ran out of ammo or it jammed. He then pulled out his pistol and continued firing, and he and York shot down several more Germans on the slope of the hill. Other German troops now came rushing towards the sounds of the fighting, and they came rushing in a line towards the fight. York saw them and shot the first man center mass, getting him in the abdomen. York then shot down two more men before the rest scattered. It was now here that German Leutnant Paul Fulmer blew his whistle from amongst the prone POWs and began signaling for the surviving Germans on the hill to both stop firing and surrender. The fire from the hill ceased, and those Germans still alive began to come down from the high ground. Acting Corporal Marathu, wounded by gunfire in his left arm, began to reorganize the prisoners and their doughboy captors. Marathu ordered York to the front of the column with Fulmer, and York kept his pistol pointed at the Germans' back. As they marched back towards American lines, Fulmer called on other Germans to surrender, which they grudgingly did. The column made its way back to the 2nd Battalion lines. Marathu marched at its side, apparently screaming at the German prisoners all the while. Once within the safety of their battalion area, Marathu was ordered to report to the aid station with the other wounded. From here, York was put in charge of the prisoners, and he then marched them all the way back to the division-level prisoner cages. Here, Alvin York met Brigadier General Lindsay, 
And so the legend that many of us know began. Alvin York came home already famous in 1919. And he would come home at a time when America needed heroes for various reasons. In the background, the United States was a rapidly industrializing polyglot melange of growing cities and seemingly shrinking rural spaces. Americans, both those hailing from original settlers and new immigrants, found themselves uneasy in a world that was changing far too fast for them. To them, Alvin York represented the pioneer spirit of the country's earlier days, when a simple Christian man could lead a pure life of working the earth, fearing his God, and loving his country. In that religious aspect, York also represented the Christian warrior who fought for his God and country, rendering unto Caesar the things that were Caesar's. In this respect, he helped Americans make sense of a war they did not fully understand. Next episode, we're going to pull away from the Argonne and pan over to the 5th and 3rd Corps sectors. There, American forces continued to batter away at the German lines, becoming embroiled in some serious fights over hills and woods. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at www1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.